and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 167, Another Step Back. With the Narva detachment trapped on the Courland Peninsula of Latvia's northwest corner, it was now out of the main fighting, as in its ability to help defend Berlin. As for the fate of the 200,000 troops of the German 20th Mountain Army, previously stationed, but now trapped in Finland, that was yet to be determined. The Finns had agreed to help invade Soviet Russia, but really, they just wanted their territory back, lost during the Winter War, which went from November of 39 to March of 1940. And when they recovered that land in 1941, the Finns were content to hold the line, their line. Considering what military aid the Germans had given to Finland, their investment was not paying satisfactory dividends, but there wasn't much Berlin could do about it. By 1944, the 6th SS Mountain Division Nord was among those 200,000 troops in Finland. But as mighty a force as that number suggests, the Germans weren't strong enough to do anything offensive on their own. They couldn't even cut the link of Allied supplies coming in from Murmansk or Archangel, and not for lack of trying. Even worse, the 20th Mountain Army could do nothing to help the larger war that was the Eastern Front. Stalin had enough troops to keep them busy, while he weakened Army Group Center, roughed up Army Group South, pushed back Army Group North, and then, as we have seen, decimate Army Group Center. But what the Germans in Finland could do, and do well, was defend themselves, and this they proceeded to do throughout 1942 and 1943, as Stalin, still learning the ropes, let himself get sidetracked by this sideshow to the north. But now that the Red Army had advanced so far south, the 20th Mountain Army was exactly that, a sideshow. Still, the Germans to the north, along with the hostile Finland, was not an ideal situation for Stalin. He had gotten lucky when the Japanese, as Barbarossa had started out, decided to move south instead of north. And though he was winning, the Soviet leader did not need this headache or potentially explosive situation on his northern flank. But with hindsight, the Finns were about to learn a lesson. After Moscow survived the opening phase of Barbarossa, that is, the fall of 1941 and the spring of 1942 came to Russia and the capital city was still defiant, it wouldn't be long before Soviet attacks were launched to the north, at Finland. Now, these wouldn't be simple suicide missions to divert the Finns' attention, but rather Stalin was showing that not only was he and his hanging in there, but they had the means to attack to the north at the same time as dealing with the Germans. So when the attacks came to the north, they were coupled with messages of desiring a dialogue. But the Finns, happy with retaking their land, were not interested. Yet, as the Soviet attacks continued and increased over the next two years, the Finns' leader, President Mannerheim, was getting worn down, just like his men. Yes, the Germans were helping defend the border, but the Russians, in their millions, would eventually break through. What would Stalin take then? Potentially so much more than he had during the Winter War. 
Now, slowing down this entire process of Stalin sending armies north, only to be fought to a standstill by the Finns and the Germans, were the harsh conditions where the fighting was taking place. Where there were no roads, there was either a lake or thick forests, neither which a large formation could move through in an organized fashion. Winter meant only a few hours of light, and if one did not have skis, travel or even movement was impossible. Spring meant thaw, and thaw meant swampy ground. As for the Finnish summers, they were nice, but the armies of mosquitoes negated any relaxation. To be sure, the Kampfgruppe Nord of 1941 was vastly inferior to the Nord Division of September 1944, when the Finns and Soviets signed a ceasefire. Now, no more policemen or concentration camp guards had been brought into the unit for some time, and those still around had been put through intense training. In fact, German officers were so impressed with the improvement to Nord that it was allowed to participate in the defensive border fighting of 1942-43, not that this helped the Finns very much. Now that the fighting was over to the north, along the Finnish-Soviet border, what of the 20th Mountain Division? The answer to that would be determined by Stalin. He put into the agreement that all German troops either had to leave Finland or put down their arms by September 15th. Clearly, the former was impossible, and that was the point. Let the Finns and Germans stare at each other, perhaps shoot at each other. Either way, Soviet forces would be free to keep moving west. The initial response to this by the German officers was to head north and form their own redoubt, not unlike the Narva detachment within the Courland Peninsula, but that was quickly seen as unworkable. The next option, because laying down their arms was never going to happen, was to make for German-controlled Norway. Problem was, the Finns were being pressured by the Soviets to live up to the agreement. Still, the Germans moved off of the Soviet-Finnish border and started making their way north. The feelings between the Germans and the Finns at the moment was more than friendly. In fact, the Germans, before they left the area, helped a city bury the bells of their church before the Soviet troops showed up. In return, the locals helped the Germans with transportation, which they were weak in. With this done, the Germans moved out in columns, but were soon come upon by Soviets who were rushing into the area. The Germans were engaged, but they kept moving north as they knew more enemy troops were on the way. The Finns stood to one side. Their days of fighting were over. In a matter of days, the Soviets disengaged as they had been ordered to stay within a certain area and no one defied Stalin. The Germans were now free to make good time, well, as much as the terrain would allow them. The Norwegian border was some 450 miles, or 724 kilometers away, hence the Nord Division would be walking for months, but there was no other option. Throughout September, the Nord Division made good time, as they were left alone, but that changed in October, as the Soviet liaison officer now in Finland, kept asking about that one aspect 
of the ceasefire, that all German troops either leave the country or laid down their arms by September 15th. The Finns could guess what would happen to the German troops had they complied with a second possibility. Still, it was not their problem. Their main problem now was to appease the Russian bear, which now had troops beyond their defensive lines. With the pressure from Moscow unrelenting, the Finns were forced to attack the German columns, who had made it clear they would not be surrendering their arms. In return, in the name of solid tactics and revenge, the Germans would destroy everything in their path if they were attacked, as to make sure their pursuers, now the Finns, had nothing to sustain them. On October 14th, the town of Ravenemi was come upon by the Germans. Here they turned north. This saw them cross the Arctic Circle, the most northern of the five major circles of latitude, which brought severe cold winds and temperatures. As October ended, the Germans were in two columns, now coming upon the town of Numomio, near the Finnish-Swedish border. The Norwegian border was still further north. Yet, as this was close to the border, it was the Finns' last chance to rid themselves of the Germans and get the Russians off their backs. On October 26th, the last Finnish attack came. It was launched as a well-organized surprise, which killed one regimental commander right away and took out a supply train. A good start. However, the Germans were frustrated, frustrated and exhausted, and all that turned into anger. They were frustrated with the weather. They were frustrated with their turn of fortune. They were frustrated with Germany's turn of fortune, and now to be attacked by previous allies. Regardless of the reason, it was all too much. The intense German counterattack pushed the Finns back into the woods, which allowed Nord to occupy Muonio, to act as a refuge for any German soldiers that had not yet reached the fighting point. Now reorganized, the Germans moved out towards the Norwegian border. But before leaving, and still wanting to show their disgust towards their former comrades, what Finnish medals they had been awarded, they hung on the city's sign. As for the settlement itself, that was set afire as the occupiers moved out. Having chastised the Finns, the Nord made it to Norway without further resistance in early November. Yet Norway looked much the same as Finland, as the men had only crossed a line on a map. There were no structures to house them or people to greet them. Most importantly, no railway to convey them. So the men of Nord continued their march along the coastal roads of northern Norway. Only on December 10th did they reach the rail line at Monirana. These men had spent three months walking and fighting for just over 1,000 miles. But their involvement in the war wasn't behind them. They would be sent to Denmark for refitting and then moved to the Western Front to take on American soldiers. As stated previously, Operation Bagration, Stalin's massive counterthrust against enemy troops in Belarusia, commenced on June 22nd, 1944, on the third anniversary of Operation Barbarossa, the result being Army Group Center was deceived 
and then decimated, losing 400,000 men, dead, wounded, captured, or missing. Of course, with such a tear in the German line, all available units were sent to close the gap, and that included the Totenkopf and the Viking. With a hole in modern-day Belarus, which borders Poland and Lithuania, the Russians next decided to focus a bit to the south of here, at Lviv, in modern-day western Ukraine. But in order to threaten that defensive line, they first had to take the town of Brody, due west of Zitormir, and just northeast of Lviv. But at and around Brody was the German 13th Army, augmented by the Ukrainian 14th Waffen-SS Grenadier Division. This SS unit had about 14,000 men and officers, but was weak on anti-tank weapons and positioned to the south of Brody. Though it's not sure what the Soviets knew of the German defenses around Brody, a large formation of tanks came at the Germans on July 13th, supported by many Soviet planes overhead. As the SS Ukrainian division was to the south of town, they were not immediately engaged. However, as the defenders to the north and south of Brody were pushed back, the units inside the town held. So the 30th Regiment of the Ukrainian Division was sent north to help on July 15th. Near Lviv, as the SS Regiment was making for Brody, they reached Sasiv, and they found, coming at them, their own comrades, who were retreating to the south, having dropped everything, and they were screaming and shouting, Turn back, the Soviets are coming. Shocked but determined to do their part, the regiment kept moving forward, but they were thrown into the attack before any reconnaissance could be conducted. As such, the regiment was spotted by Soviet tanks before the SS troops could spot the tanks. Right away, SS soldiers started going down. Their communications and command capabilities were quickly taken out. With the situation to the south of Brody deteriorating, the other two regiments were sent in. However, as the Soviets were already in the area and engaging, the 29th and 31st regiments saw what was happening in front of them and so could react accordingly. Thus, they managed to stop the Soviet advance in front of them, which was not the same thing as stopping the overall attack. Now it was the turn of the Ukrainians to surprise the enemy. Just as the fighting in this immediate area was calming down, an officer from one of the regiments spotted a Soviet battalion coming at them, but something about their charge was off. Looking through his binoculars, he could see that there were indications that the attackers were of a penal battalion and apparently liquored up, which was common for such formations. On the inebriated Soviets came, screaming, bunched way too close together, and occasionally falling over their own feet. The SS regiment lined up, readied their weapons, and waited. They expected the Soviets to eventually drop to the ground and begin firing. That was the normal procedure. But the enemy just kept coming. So seven MG-42 machine guns, setting on tripods, opened up. Capable of shooting at least 700 bullets a minute, within a short time, the surviving Soviets, 
probably now much more sober than they were a minute ago, turned around and ran the other way. But again, this was one small victory in a much larger Soviet tidal wave. By July 18th, just five days after the attack started, the 30,000 German and Ukrainian troops around Brody were completely surrounded. To be sure, other German formations tried to break through this pocket, but the Soviets had, by now, this down to a science, and they put rings around rings around Brody. And then it got worse. First, communication suffered as the SS commander Freitag had trouble reaching the Wehrmacht leader, who could only then be reached by courier. Knowing he and his were on their own, the 13th Corps commander, General Hauf, made plans to break out. But first, he needed to know the situation to the south, his intended direction. So he contacted Freitag. But the SS Brigade Fuhrer shocked the general by sending back a message that read, his Ukrainians had broken under the strain of being surrounded and no longer listened to him. Further, as his command was uncommandable, not a word, he was resigning. Hauf probably wanted to shoot this man, but he didn't have the time. Instead, he put Major General Lindman of the 361st Division in charge of what remained of the SS Division and prepared to move out. Their first attempt, on July 20th, was beaten back. Trying again the next day, the Germans did not so much punch a hole through the Soviet rings as rather loosened them up. Small groups of Germans and Ukrainians began to filter through. By July 22nd, the Brody Pocket, as had so many pockets before it, ceased to exist. But 2,807 Ukrainians and at least 800 Germans managed to escape. Now that the drama was over, the finger-pointing got underway. The Wehrmacht officers made their accusations against the Ukrainians, but as they were SS troops, Himmler protected them, and he said they did as well as they could, given the circumstances. As for Freitag, he wanted no more of this, but Himmler put him back into his position and gave him a knight's cross. Then the SS Führer got to work rebuilding the division, yet he started with 1,000 German officers and NCOs. This formation of non-Germans had been called the Galatian No. 1. That was their official name, but now it was designated the Ukrainian No. 1 even though it had fewer of those countrymen in it. Next, Himmler started rounding up men to fill the ranks, which by September of 44 was back to 14,000. The problem was, however, the Ukrainian number one had few weapons and very little heavy equipment, thus being a division more on paper than reality, which was becoming the norm in Nazi Germany. Next, this division would be sent to Slovakia, but without enough of anything to truly put up a fight. And the fighting was far from over. 